Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 121 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk all about the gold medal plants program with Andrew Bunting, vice president of horticulture at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. The plant profile is on dahlias, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events. This episode, we're joined by returning guest, Andrew Bunting. He is vice president of horticulture at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Previously, he joined us to talk all about magnolias and hydrangeas. Welcome back, Andrew. Great to be back. Today's topic will be the gold medal plants program that PHS, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, um, has put together. And... As we dive into that, just want to ask you a couple of seasonal questions, Andrew, about your garden and what's looking good right now. Yeah, I would say in my garden, uh, there's some fall bloomers. There's um, actually one of the gold medal plants that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, uh, one of the iron weeds, one called iron butterfly, is in mm. full flower that has tiny purple flowers. Uh, some of the grasses are looking good outside my window. I have a millennia uh, sky racer, which has uh, long kind of airy flower heads and seed heads that are about eight feet tall. So I enjoy that. Um, of course, the tro- my tropicals still are looking good. So things like the red Abyssinian banana, all the cannas, all the elephant ears look, look really good. Um, You know, things like toad lilies, some of those are just starting to flower. Ringishoma Mm -hmm. is flowering. Um, So, you know, this time of year, the, all those annuals and tropicals that you've planted are all kind of looking as good as they've ever looked. And then we have the benefit of, you know, fall blooming perennials. And then some things are, you know, just starting to get a little bit of fall color, probably more due to uh, the heat and the stresses of drought than due to kind of cooling weather. Although I think, you know, definitely in parts of the United States, cooler weather is, is on its way and that'll help speed up some of the autumnal colors as well. Mm -hmm. And so you're in the Philadelphia PA area and versus Washington DC, I think you've gotten a bit less rain than us this year and so it's definitely a bit drier and of course shortening daylight also factors into things right right yeah the shortening day length you know will impact not all plants but you know things like uh, asters and salvias you know a lot of the salvias that might bloom okay during the summers a lot of them seem to have the real flower power in the fall because they're they're triggered by shorter days or or less light. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I've seen that. And even with some annual salvias that that do all right during the summer, but they really seem to flower more more so in the fall. And yes, Mm -hmm. we've had a a fairly dry year 
as well. And, you know, some landscapes, you know, seem impacted by it. I have been doing some supplemental watering at home. So my gardens for the most part look uh, pretty good. I would say some things look a little, little haggard because of the the long periods of drought that we've had this summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you'd mentioned in your blooming garden, your toad lilies. And I had a little bit of a tragedy coming out yesterday and seeing one whole section of toad lilies mowed down to the ground by a resident bunny. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is about toad lilies, but they, especially Tricertus herda, you know, the mm -hmm. typical toad lily is, seems to be the number one plant that uh, the rabbits like. I also have a resident groundhog currently in my yard, but they seem to only eat, they eat some coleus and some sweet potato vines, but the sweet potato vines grow back so quickly that, you know, it, for them, it only seems like a little bit of a, a pruning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They've left three other clumps of toad lily alone, knock on wood, but yeah, that one, which I think is the Miyazawa um, series. Right. I think that's the one that they've gone for. Yeah, some of the other species that have shinier leaves, for whatever reason, they don't seem to touch those. Mm. Good note. So, turning our attention to the gold medal plants program, and this is an invention, correct, of PHS. They started it, and can you define um, what it means to be a gold medal plant? Sure. So, this is a program that's been in existence for about 40 years and kind of our recipe for selecting gold medal plants has uh, remained the same. So we have a, a committee that's about, say about 15 professionals. And so there's garden designers, garden center owners, nurserymen, uh, botanic garden and arboretum, people, um, some writers. So, so, you know, really kind of the full gamut of professional horticulturists. And they convene twice a year and they review uh, kind of a docket of nominated plants. Most of the plants are nominated by the committee members, although anybody can. Um, and they evaluate them for a, a number of different criteria, including it has to be ornamental. It has to have some ecological functions. So either be a food source for birds or mammals or a pollinator plant. Uh, they need to be kind of stalwart and resilient. Uh, they should, if they can, have multiple seasons of ornamental interest. And they need to be easy to find. So, for example, I've nominated... Daphnophyllum macropotum, which is an incredible, really tough, broad-leafed evergreen, but it's not available in both wholesale nurseries or uh, retail nurseries. So it's, for the time being, has not made uh, uh, the gold medal designation. So every year we, we pick uh, usually about six plants, and it's usually two trees, two shrubs, and two perennials. And these are plants that are not necessarily new at all. These are plants that the committee has determined that not only are they good ornamental plants today, but they're 
really ornamental plants that have stood the test of time. So since we've been doing this now for 40 years or so, you know, there's a list of nearly 200 plants on, on the list. And you'll see that it's more trees and shrubs because we started with trees and shrubs originally and then added perennials uh, a little later. So there's less perennials than trees and shrubs. Uh, we also have um, hardy vines. Um, we tend to, tend to stay clear of plants that uh, are already well represented by a society. For example, there's there's no roses on the list because the Rose Society has their own ways of promoting hmm. uh, roses. So if there's things like that, um, you know, that ha have a have their own kind of award system within a society, we tend to, tend to stay clear of those. We've also gone through the entire list from time to time and kick out plants that seem like they were good, you know, 30 years ago, but, you know, perhaps they've become invasive or they're just not that great in the garden. For example, um, uh, there was a, uh, a blue father gilla, not not blue shadows, but another one. I can't think of the name right now, but it it just you know it, it was neat when it came out, but it was a weak grower, or it, you know became a weak grower, and so that was that was taken out. Uh, there was a ligustrum, a yellow one that was taken out just because you know if it goes to seed, uh, that's really a, a, a known invasive plant. In the area, there was a barberry and crimson pygmy that was on the list and was removed for the same reason. So there is a kind of a continual uh, vetting process because we what we want at the end of the day is for this list to be something that anybody and it it, it serves the Mid Atlantic region. That's another criteria. It has to be uh, a plant that's known to be hardy in in the kind of the greater Mid Atlantic. Uh, but we want it to be a list that somebody, whether they're a, a home gardener or a professional, can pick up and they'll know that these plants are proven to be, you know, good ornamentals or great ornamentals uh, for this area. Hmm. And... It's interesting to note that something can be a gold medal plant in the past and be dropped. So I hadn't realized yeah. that, that you did revise uh, the past winner's list. So you definitely need to go back and check. It's mostly invasives that get taken off. Mm -hmm. um, you know, things like Viburnum dilatatum is another one where, you know, it's a great fruiting ornamental shrub, but it's, you know, if you go to places you know, some local arboretum and look in the woods, it's solid viburnum dilatatum. So, you know, we're, we're pretty mindful of, you know, things that are actually on invasive lists and things that are really exhibiting kind of a propensity for invasiveness. So you can be stripped of your gold medal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's only the plant that's being stripped of it. It's not... You know, that whoever nominates it doesn't get it. It's actually the mm -hmm. plant that gets the designation. So we'll assume that they don't have any feelings. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tragedy of that. So uh, another thing that you had noted is that it has to be available in the trade, that the consumer can purchase it or locate it. But do you find that 
after something is named a gold medal plant that it becomes more available at that point. So it's kind of a yin and yang type of thing. Yes. In fact, um, you know, once, once we give it, so it's usually in the summer of the, the year before. So, you know, we selected this summer, the 2023 winners. So what we do is we, we announce the winners to kind of the trade in the, in the fall so that they have the opportunity to go out and find them and then maybe promote them for spring sales. Uh, and then we do an, another more kind of general P- PR release in the spring for kind of the general public and, and um, you know, news outlets and th- things like that. Because um, we do find that there's, you know, quite a few garden centers that, you know, for example, we have a local garden center, um, Astartes Nursery, and they have a whole area that's just gold metal plants. So they really use it as a way to promote the plants. So we want to give, you know, garden center owners a, a ample enough time to go out and find these plants. And when we go it, when we when we select cultivars. You know, we're also mindful of, you know, picking ones that, that will also kind of stand the test of times. As you know, like, you know, for example, coneflowers, you know, there's dozens of new coneflowers every, mm-hmm. every year. But, you know, we have to think, are these coneflowers going to be around, you know, 10, 15 years from now? Again, with a lot of them, we don't know. But our hope is that the gold medal program, uh, once it gets gold medal designation, maybe that then makes it more popular. And there may be, because of that, a more likelihood that it will be around uh, 10 years or so from now. And there's, you know, as we start to talk about ones on the list, there's a lot on the list that are fairly old cultivars. Like a, a really good example is, uh, salvia caradana, which is, um, uh, you know, a, one of the flowering uh, mm-hmm. salvias. And that cultivar has been around at least 10 years, pr- probably longer. And it's it has stood the test of time. It's probably still remains one of the uh, most popular of the flowering salvias to be sold. Um, so, you know, we, we, we keep all that in mind when we're selecting these as well. Um, but you know, if there's something that's brand new and is, you know, is fantastic, like a, a good, uh, example is, uh, Rude Becky American Gold Rush, which has only been around for a few years. It actually just won, uh, the perennial plant association, uh, perennial of the year. We gave it the gold medal, I think in 2021, and it was it, at that point was you know almost brand new to the trade, but I think because it's now gotten the PPA uh, plant, perennial plant of the year, that'll probably catapult it to being something that people have around for hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully decades to come. But you know, if it if it wanes in its popularity and for for whatever reason just does isn't available anymore, that may be reason enough to to pull its gold medal status because it at the end of the day they have they have to be plants that are available mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I've seen those displays that you mentioned at some garden centers where they'll set up an area of gold metal plants. And it, I think that's a great way to get out some proven um, great selections. And also at the Philadelphia Flower Show itself, I believe there's always a display or booth of gold metal plants. Yeah, there's uh, this past year wasn't a, um, uh, a booth specific to gold metal plants, although we have had that in the past. So... We also are working on a kind of an internal philosophy or set of principles called gardening for the greater good, which uh, has to do with ecological gardening and sharing plants and promoting great plants. So it was in that exhibit that we embedded um, the gold medal plants. Um, so yes, we will continue to have uh, you know some representation of gold medal plants at, at future flower shows. And then we also, you know, we maintain about 20 public gardens and landscapes, and those are also good venues for us to promote uh, gold medal plants. And then I live in Swarthmore, PA, and uh, Swarthmore, PA is the home of Swarthmore College and the Scott Arboretum of Swarthmore College. And the Scott Arboretum, to my knowledge, is the only public garden uh, that has an entire space dedicated to gold metal plants. So they have uh, this area around these dormitories that are all gold metal plants. So if you want to see gold metal plants uh, used kind of in situ or in, in landscape type situations, you might want to check out the gold metal, they call it the gold metal garden at the Scott Arboretum of Swarthmore College. Hmm. Excellent place to visit. I had just been there in August with the Perennial Plant Association that you mentioned and the yeah, yeah. naming of the new uh, Rudbeckia. And yeah, I did see the gold medal garden, but I didn't even note that it was from that program. I was just thinking gold medal, you know, something to do with the university. Right. Yeah, no, no, it's from this program and it, it doesn't have all the the gold medal plants, because now it's, you know, the list is, I think, you know, over 150. But they did, I know they've done some renovations to it recently. So I suspect they've been adding uh, some new plants uh, to that garden. But it's a, it's a pretty good representation of trees, shrubs, and perennials, and a couple vines as well. Hmm. So let's turn now to this year's crop sure. of gold medal plants to 2022's gold medal plant winners. And the first on the list, I guess they're listed alphabetically, is Abelia grandiflora little richer, the glossy Abelia. Yes. So that's, um, again, Abelias have been around, you know, they're actually kind of an old fashioned uh, plant. And uh, what we liked about uh, little, little Richard is, uh, abelias actually exhibit pretty good deer resistance. That's another thing we really look at it. Not every plant has to be deer resistant, but if it is, it's probably more likely to get, uh, the gold medal designation. Cause that's a real, obviously a real concern for, uh, a lot, a lot of gardeners. Um, you know, it's hardy zone six to nine, uh, Little Richard, uh, as the name might imply, is a you know kind of a, a smallish uh, shrub, uh, good for pollinators. Uh, has white flowers that are uh, uh, 
mainly in spring and then into the summer and a fragrant as well. So just a good, tough shrub, mm-hmm. um, you know, with multi-seasons of interest, the leaves are, are shiny as well. It is one I see used like in office parks and in industrial areas. And it's a prolific bloomer in full beating down sun. And I sometimes wonder if it even gets supplemental water in some of those locations. Yeah, no, it it is. uh, I would say all the abelias are are tough shrubs. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they kind of get uh, passed over. Because there's, uh, you know, so many other flowering shrubs. But, you know, abelias, you know, you often see big old abelias around, you know, houses that were built in the teens and the 20s. So mm-hmm. they were popular, you know, 100 years ago. And I think they're probably popular, because, like you said, because they are, uh, you know, tough. They're fast growing. Um, so, you know, they... Uh, you know, are are quick to establish, they flower, you know, at a very young age as well. And that, you know, since they do attract butterflies and other pollinators, they're good, they're good for that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe sometime we'll have to do a whole episode just on abelia. (laughs) We could, I'm sure it's possible. I'd have to do a little research, but uh, Mm -hmm. it could be done. So next on the list is a tree, and that's the Acer Freemani Autumn Blaze Freeman Maple. All right. So, you know, this is, uh, I guess you could call it a, a native maple, even though it's a hybrid, because both parents, uh, the silver maple and the red maple, are, are natives. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of um, need for tough urban trees. So one of the programs we have through the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society is our our street tree program. And every year we plant about 3,000 street trees, uh, especially in parts of the city where there's uh, uh, in need of more green infrastructure and there's green equity issues. So, you know, in real urban places like Philadelphia, you know, we need trees that are tough. And um, we've actually just for uh, just a teaser for 2023, uh, the two of the trees we picked are uh, the Swamp White Oak, Quercus Bicolor, and a selection of Nyssa Green Gable, both both of which are are native trees. And it's not to say that only native trees are tough urban trees, because there are others like Ginkgo is an example that's a great, tough uh, street trees. So what's nice about Autumn Blaze is it can take tough, you know, kind of disturbed urban soils. Uh, one of the parent, well, both of the parents, but the red maple and the silver maple are tolerant of uh, poorly drained soils and, and wet soils. So they can take that. It's extremely hardy. And then as the cultivar would imply, Autumn Blaze, it has, you know, kind of fire engine red fall color. It's also very fast growing. So, you know, both red maples and silver maples by nature are fast growing, but uh, Freemanii, because it has some hybrid vigor as well as even faster growing. So, you know, like a a one-year-old whip or two-year-old whip that might go in that's say, you know, six to eight feet, you know, will probably double in size in in just a matter of a, a couple of years. So, uh, you know, it has that as a, as a benefit. 
as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and another thing to be mindful of with, with red maples, like there's a lot of uh, cultivars of acerubrum, uh, but acerubrum, uh, you know, in the wild has a wide range from like Northern Florida up to like the, you know, mid middle parts of Canada. So you, you do want to be mindful of where the seed has come from, uh, for those cultivar selections and autumn blaze is a one, uh, I'm not sure where the seed came from exactly, but it does have both heat tolerance as well as cold heart hardiness. So, you know, that is something to be, uh, to at least pay attention to. Hmm. That's great to know. And so the next introduction is another tree, but a little bit smaller in statue, the Cornuscusa Scarlet Fire. It's a Cusa dogwood, obviously not a native, correct? Yeah. So this is a selection that came out of Rutgers University. And for the last 30 years or so, Rutgers has been a leader in dogwood hybridizing, mostly the work of uh, Elwyn Orton who's a professor and scientist at, at Rutgers. Um, so he's done a lot of work with hybridizing Cusas and Floridas and has, you know, a whole series of these kind of intermediate crosses. Scarlet Fire is a, a straight selection of Cornus Cusa. And it has, uh, like, like other dogwoods, it has four bracts. In the case of the Cusa dogwood, they're kind of uh, narrow uh, or narrow to the tips and it has this um, amazing kind of fuchsia colored flowers kind of fuchsia red uh, flowers um, so that makes it uh, I think distinct amongst the dogwoods like like other kusas the the size is going to be kind of a medium-sized tree you know ultimately to 20 feet or so with an equal spread and then uh, Kusas get a nice kind of purplish fall color. And then it's also been, uh, uh, you know, because it's a Kusa, it doesn't get some of the disease problems that the, the native dogwood gets, in particular anthracnose and powdery mildew. Uh, blooms at a young age, which, which is nice and perfectly hardy for, for this area. Hmm. So our next is a perennial which I have in my garden and I love. And this is the Hookra Caramel Coral Bells. And I suppose some people might pronounce it Caramel. Yeah. So this is a selection of uh, uh, the native alum root or Hookra. And as you know, there's, you know, again, dozens, if not hundreds of cultivars of Hookras now, nowadays, both the native one and the, the more kind of garden types. And um, caramel is one that ha has kind of caramel colored uh, foliage, kind of this uh, yellowish orange foliage. And a lot of heucheras in the garden aren't very perennial, uh, but most heuchera velosas and caramel in, in particular is, uh, you know, perenni it perennializes, forms a nice clump, in uh, a mild winter can be, you know, semi-evergreen to evergreen. Uh, can take, 
you know, full sun, but I would say kind of dappled shade is probably best uh, for maintaining the color of the foliage and um, just so it doesn't kind of scorch in, in full sun. Uh, Heuchera velosa, I would say, is it's hard to say anything is completely deer resistant, but I think because it has fuzzy leaves, it 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 generally is much more resistant to deer than you know a, a lot of other mm-hmm. shrubs and perennials. Um, it is native. Uh, it does it does send up spikes of white flowers, uh, which can be nice, but it, most people just grow it for its uh, colored foliage. And, you know, looks good in a mass, uh, in the garden really kind of can brighten up, um, uh, partially shady corner of the yard combines nicely with other perennials, ferns and toad lilies and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's a good, 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 tough, uh, especially for, for ground covering purposes, a perennial in the garden. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have it in several containers. It looks great in containers as well. Yes, yes. And speaking of low growing or ground cover type plants, the the next selection, Ilex opaca, Maryland dwarf, which is an American holly. That looks like it could be a nice spreading, low evergreen ground cover, similar to some of the junipers. Yes, yeah. And it's uh, American hollies for the most part are are deer resistant. I'm not sure why, because not not all hollies are deer resistant. So this really has... A lot of attributes. It's native, so it's a selection of uh, the native American holly. And American hollies are, you know, upright trees that you know have a pyramidal habit, and they're 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 nice in their own right. Uh, but this is a spreading form, so at maturity, this plant will only be about uh, two feet tall, and be much more wide than it is tall, and uh, it. It can grow in shade or full sun. It uh, is evergreen, so that's nice. And it really doesn't have any pest or disease problems to speak of. And, and you know, one of the things we were concerned about was availability, but it is now, uh, there's a couple bigger wholesale nurseries who are growing it. So if the wholesalers are growing it, then it, it will trickle down into... Uh, the garden centers. So, you know, it's not the easiest plant to propagate. It's kind of slow from cuttings. Hmm. Um, but again, like you said earlier, if there's a demand for it and the demand can be kind of f- uh, fueled through the gold medal program, then, you know, chances are more wholesalers will start growing it and then more retailers will have it available. Mm, looking forward to seeing that and maybe trying that one out. And so the last selection for 2022 is Pycmanthinum muticum, the mountain mint, and I yes. assume no cultivars, just the straight species. Right. So the mountain mints in general are probably one of the very best of all the pollinator plants. Like if you're a home gardener and wanted to put a sp- you know, you can only you only have the space to put in one pollinator plant. I would I would suggest uh, the one of the mountain mints. We selected Pycnanthema muticum, um, and that it's a, a spreading plant. And it can, you know, I'll say up front, it can spread quickly. It's not 
it is in the mint family. It's by no means as um, kind of invasive as some of the kind of culinary mints or the mm. type of mints you would put in, in tea or something like that. But it does spread. It forms a clump over time. It gets about two and a half feet tall. And it has uh, w- these kind of white bracts that are very ornamental. And if you crush the foliage, it has a real minty kind of pepper peppermint fragrance uh because it has that minty fragrance uh the deer don't eat it it is i would say deer resistant it can take almost any type of soil from fairly moist not wet but kind of moist soils to dry soils uh likes full sun the flowers themselves are almost microscopic you can't hardly even see them Mm. but it's those tiny lavender flowers that attracts butterflies, bees, uh, pollinating wasps, uh, you know, just like you go out there when it's in, and I plant, have planted them so they create like a big mass. And uh, it literally, you can hear the plants buzzing because there's so much pollinator activity. So there are other species worth considering. Um, tenuifolium and virginianum and, and others. Uh, but muticum is great because of these kind of whitish bracts that are very ornamental that kind of sit atop the, the foliage of the perennial. And the t- uh, very drought tolerant as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are usually a buzz with bees anytime yes. you walk by them. <laughs> yes. They're just crazy. And some butterflies too, of course. Yeah, butterflies. And yeah, a lot a lot of uh, native bees, a lot of native uh, non-stinging wasps that are good uh, pollinators, mm-hmm. uh, little moths, and I'm sure, uh, you know, sweat bees and uh, other types of, of pollinators. It's almost hard to identify everything that's on them because there's such a myriad of pollinators. Mm-hmm. And when you crush the leaves, you get that beautiful minty scent. So yes. that's, that's always nice. Yeah. And de- deer resistance is a great attribute of this perennial. Mm-hmm. So that's the 2022 introductions. And can you give us a little peek of 2023? I think you hinted at some before. Sure. sure. So actually 2023 is, uh, uh, and we didn't plan it this way. It's all uh, nat- native plants. And um, so I I mentioned a couple. So the two trees are the Swamp White Oak, Quercus Bicolor. And we've been using, I would say Quercus Bicolor has really kind of uh, been elevated on the list of great uh, urban street trees. So it can take really dry soils or uh, as the common name would imply, Swamp White Oak. It can grow in almost swampy conditions. It has good kind of golden to yellow fall color. Uh, It it grows uh, relatively quickly for for an oak, is urban tolerant. And like Doug Tallamy has said in his his books, the the regular white oak, Quercus alba, as well as Quercus bicolor and other native oaks, you know, are host to hundreds of native species, whether it's, um, you know, larvae of butterflies or 
ants or other insects or birds for that matter, and even, even mammals. So they, you know, support a lot of ecological functions. There is a cultivar, we didn't select it, but there's one called Beacon, which is a, a more upright selection of Quercus mm. bicolor. And then we also select a Nissa sylvatica green gable, which is a, a selection of the black gum, Nissa sylvatica, with great fire engine redfall color, great form, uh, easy to find, uh, grows quickly. So Nissa sylvaticas have all also proven themselves to be good uh, street trees, pretty pretty tough and in urban conditions. Uh, the perennials we selected were, as I mentioned earlier, the selection of the ironweed, uh, Vernonia lettermanii, uh, iron butterfly, which is um, a fine foliage perennial. It gets about two feet tall. Uh, texturally, it's great in the garden with uh, really fine foliage, almost like a, an Amsonia hubrichtii. And then this time of year, it's actually blooming now. It has these tiny little kind of aster-like uh, flowers uh, that are that are an intense kind of violet purple. It is, I won't say 100% deer resistant, but like last year, the deer browsed it a little, little bit. And I have a lot of deer pressure in my front yard, but this year I've had no, no browsing on it. So I would say it's mostly deer resistant. Mm-hmm. I think it's a matter, I was going to say, I think it's a matter of the height, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I now have them out of my gravel garden. So, I mean, the deer go, do go into the gravel garden, but uh, uh, maybe they don't like the crushed gravel under their feet. Uh, it's drought, drought tolerant for sure. Um, I think it does attract some, some pollinators. So that's kind of a good all around plant. Easy to find. Uh, nice kind of mast in the landscape. Uh, looks good with uh, ornamental grasses, ornamental native grasses. And then the other perennial is um, Spigelia marilandica. So uh, Spigelia is a plant that's been around for a while. Again, the, the thing probably holding it back before from making the gold medal list was uh, availability. Mm-hmm. But it ha- has been people, it's now being grown uh, in tissue culture labs. So it's easier to kind of mass produce. Uh, in the spring, it has these upward facing uh, reddish, orangish reddish flowers with a, uh, a yellow lip. And they're one of the great plants for uh, feeding uh, the hummingbirds that, that come back. In the spring, the ruby-throated hummingbirds, uh, which is the only species we have in this in this area, so they're great great for that. And they're just um, kind of an atypical native plant in that they, you know, I think most people, if they looked at it and didn't know what it was, might think it was uh, a non-native. Uh, so you know, has this abundance of upward-facing tubular flowers uh, can grow. I have it both in full sun and full shade and it seems to do equally well i've noticed over the years that uh i do get a few seedlings coming up here here and there which which is fine uh i've seen it chanticleer growing in full shade um so it seems to be a fairly versatile 
uh, plant in the garden. It only gets about 18 inches tall. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have a small garden, it's easily kind of tucked into a small, small garden or a s small space. And then we have two shrubs. So one is uh, a viburnum, Chicago luster, which has been around for a long time, actually came through out of a program in Chicago called Chicago Land Grows, which is a program that is kind of joint jointly um, produced by the Morton Arboretum, Chicago Botanic Garden, and then a, a consortium of nurseries in, in northern Illinois and in southern Wisconsin. So Chicago Lester, as the name might imply, is perfectly hardy here. It's hardy in Chicago. It has uh, kind of flat top domes of white flowers in the spring, followed by blackish fruits. And that's one of the things it's really grown for is the, are, are the fruits. Uh, and the fruits are, you know, a great, great food for a lot of birds. Um, takes full sun, has nice glo glossy leaves. Uh, and just is a good, tough na native shrub, deciduous shrub for this area. The fall color is okay, but that's not one of its strongest attributes. And then one of the plants we selected, which I've loved for a long time, is uh, Juniperus uh, gray owl. Hmm. And so this is, um, it's thought to be a hybrid of Juniperus virginiana. And the, the other parent is kind of a question mark. It's not quite known what the, the other parent is. A lot of things have been suggested. But in any case, instead of like an upright juniper, or ground covering juniper. This is a shrubby juniper that get can get about six to eight feet tall, but the spread can be ultimately 15 to 20 feet. And it has this incredible kind of glaucous, silvery, gray foliage, which really combines nicely with any, any fall blooming perennials, things with fall color, uh, combines really nicely with uh, the winterberry hollies like Ilex verticillata winter red or winter gold, you know, red stem dogwoods. It's evergreen, so you know it looks good all, all winter long. So you might want to think about what you might want to pair it with for uh, winter interest because I think that's one of its strong attributes. I mean, mm -hmm. you can do it looks good in the summer, obviously, but you know, in the winter, it especially looks good. There's some. There's a big traffic circle in downtown Swarthmore that the Arboretum maintains, and they have several in there, and they have it in combination with, uh, I think there's some Amsonia, Hubrichtii, Threadleaf Blue Star, some Asters. Uh, in the spring, there's a bunch of Alliums that it uh, combines nicely with. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, it grows fairly, fairly quickly, like if you bought a you know, three gallon plant and it's maybe a foot by a foot. It's going to expand probably by a foot in every direction every year. Uh, so it quickly, I would say quickly matures in the landscape. And is um, not that all junipers are deer resistant, but most of them, because they have kind of spiny foliage and they have a, a pungence uh, to their foliage, I think makes mm -hmm. them mostly deer resistant. Mm -hmm. And I think the ground hugging helps as well for some. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. 
So looking back at the okay. hundred or so, I'll uh, ask the toughest question of the episode, which is for some of your past favorites that you still like. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I mentioned it earlier. I would say Salvia Caradonna is a, is a great spring flowering salvia with these spikes of smoky purple flowers. It's really, really one of the best of the perennials. And probably if I could only pick one perennial, another gold medal winner, which I also mentioned is the Threadleaf Blue Star, Amsonia hubrichtii. It has, just for its foliage alone, it has uh, uh, kind of these waving stems with narrow foliage. It gives incredible textural effect in the garden. And then that foliage in the fall turns an incredible golden fall color. And it gets it can get quite large. So the, the, if you're going to buy one, uh, don't be disappointed the first or second year. So the first year, you'll buy one and it'll be like two or three wispy stems. And then the second year, it'll be probably five to seven wispy stems. It's in its third year where it really literally takes on shrub-like proportions. I have just three three individual specimens in my front yard, and each one is probably four feet tall and probably seven feet wide, like it's almost like a massive shrub. In the spring, it's covered in these upward-facing sky blue flowers. The fall color lasts long. It can go all the way into almost early December, and then uh, you can just leave the stems up for habitat for overwintering insects for the winter, or if you think it's untidy, you can uh, cut it down. Um, and then another great attribute is I, I can attest that it's a hundred, at least in my part of Swarthmore, where there's a lot of deer, uh, I would say it's a hundred percent deer resistant. Uh, Amsonias have milky sap, um, and the deer don't like that. So I'd say all Amsonias are, seem to be deer resistant. Um, I know there's been some work to select ones that may be a little, little bit more diminutive in their stature because it can get quite big over time. And I have noticed, uh, up front, uh, they do seed around a little bit, so that can either be a good thing or a bad thing. You can just, if you don't want the seedlings, pull them up. If you do want them, either leave them where they are or transplant them when they're young and put them somewhere else in the garden or share them with your with your neighbors. Uh, I've seen it used in many uh, large landscapes where it's uh, very effective. Um, probably not the best thing for a small garden because it does take up quite a bit of space, but it is just texturally such a, such a great plant. Yeah, I can attest to the putting it near a sidewalk and underestimating the size and spread. So I'm about to move mine this fall. Yeah, I have two really big ones that I don't think I could move uh, that flank either side of the sidewalk in there. Uh, I have to prune them from time to time because uh, if we have like a dew in the morning, the mailman has to go through them and he gets sopping wet. So <laughs> I have to do a little uh, uh, liberating of them from, from uh, time to time. Um, we have time for a few more. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned earlier, 
the winterberry hollies. So we, we, we've selected both Ilex Verticillata Winter Red and Winter Gold, which are, in my opinion, are two of the best fruiting winterberry hollies. So they tend to set their fruit in the fall when the leaves are still on. And then the leaves fall off and they're, you know, almost 100% laden with these uh, round fruits are probably about a quart, you know, a third of an inch wide, shiny. Winter red is bright red. Winter gold is a little misleading. They're not really gold. They're kind of a, a soft salmon orange. And they'll get about six to eight feet tall at maturity. They do, all hollies need a male um, clone or species to pollinate them. So for both winter red winter gold there's one called southern gentleman that's uh the best pollinator for those two but if you have a big mass of winter red and say another big mass of winter gold and they're in, in fairly close proximity to each other you only need one male and the males don't have fruits they're just kind of a green foliage plant so if you just tuck one in somewhere since they're bee pollinated just one male will pollinate all those all those uh, females um, they, uh, the winterberry holly takes dry soils or it can actually grow in standing water in its native habitats. You often see winterberry hollies growing right in, in the water on the edge of a pond or a lake. So that, um, that might be where you situate it in the garden, but it's, it doesn't have to be in those type of conditions. Uh, combines, you know, we combine really well, as I mentioned with the juniper's gray owl mm-hmm. combines really well with any evergreen. So if you have another gold medal plant that's an, a great upright evergreen is Thuya green giant. So if you had like two or three Thuya green giants in your yard and then maybe in the fore, foreground you planted either winter gold or winter red or both, like a mass of each would be uh, pretty. Uh, that would be a nice combination because you would have you'd have the nice evergreen backdrop of um, of the Thuya green giant would would be nice. Um, another plant we have a few witch hazels on the uh, gold medal list. Uh, one of my favorites, and you know nowadays, like every plant, there's more and more selections of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Yelena or Jelena, J-E-L-E-N-A, has kind of stood the test of time. It has these incredible kind of coppery orange fragrant f- flowers. It can bloom it, depending on where you are and the, how mild the winter has been. But in, in, in our area, they typically are in flower kind of middle February to middle of March, usually bloom for about uh, a month. And they can bloom when it's really cold. So the you know, they have these kind of uh, uh, narrow strap-like uh, petals that almost look like little spiders. And if it gets really cold, the, the uh, petals will co- coil up and kind of protect themselves and then kind of unfurl when it gets warmer outside. Uh, great for cut branches, bring them in the house and you know, bring a lot of fragrance and color into your home in the winter, uh, usually grown as a multi-stem large shrub or even a, a small tree, depending on how you grow it. There's a disease called um, witch hazel blight, mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Uh, but Elaine is fairly resistant to it. The one that's the most um, susceptible to witch hazel blight is a cultivar that's actually the most popular, which is uh, Arnold's Promise. Uh, but Elaine is pretty uh, resistant uh, to that. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I'd heard um, recently from several other gardeners that their Arnold's promise was not up to snuff, and the no, promise- not anymore. Yeah. I mean, it was in its heyday, mm-hmm. you know, thirty years ago, uh, a great witch hazel, but really gets, you know, gets uh, disfigured by the witch hazel blight, and actually can can ultimately cause cause it to start to die out. Hmm. That's too bad, but good recommendation on the Helena um, as a substitute for that one because I've seen that do so well in our area. Well, that was a great overview of some incredible plants, Andrew, and I'm sitting here jotting down several I'm going to add to my garden um, that I don't currently have. Um, I, I do, I do want to mention if you if you want to see the whole list, yes, uh, you should go to phsonline.org and just search for gold medal plants. And we've created a, a searchable database. Mm-hmm. So it has all the characteristics, you know, flower color, fruit, fall color, deer resistance, ecological functions, you know, wet, whatever. And you can pick, you know, kind of the categories you want and then tell it to search. And so you can create these um, kind of uh, lists of plants, whether they're, you know, and it'll search through the whole list and put, you know, organize them. Um, even if it's a mixture of shrubs and Mm -hmm. and trees and perennials. Yep. And yeah, you can search even by the year awarded, um, and several other attributes, like what time, uh, is it in bloom? What time and what season? So it's a great database and we'll put the link to that in our show notes and any final thoughts, Andrew? I would just say that we're going to continue to add to the list. So, you know, as I mentioned before, the committee's been around for about, not the same committee, but a committee for 40 years. Although there are people on the committee that have served for over 20 years, in some, in one case, 30 years. So, um, you know, we'll continue to add to the list and also kind of revise the list as needed. Um, So, yeah, just, you know, every, every year there'll be more. And uh, hopefully it'll become a, a, a tool that, uh, especially the online list, I think can be a tool for home, home gardeners and, and professionals alike. Terrific. It is a valuable resource. And thank you to uh, the committee and PHS and yourself for putting that together. Sure. And thank you for joining us on the podcast, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me back again. Dahlia plant profile. Dahlia is a tuberous plant that produces ornamental flowers. The blooms range in size from small to quite large. They can range widely in form and coloration as well. The dahlia is native to the mountains of Mexico and Guatemala. It is hardy to zones 8 to 11, so it is treated as an annual in other growing zones. The tuberous roots are dug up each autumn and then stored indoors for the winter. They can be potted up or planted directly in the ground 
once the soils warm up again in the spring. Dahlias need a site with good drainage and part to full sun. Due to their hollow stems and heavy flowers, most dahlia plants will need to be staked or caged for support. In many ways, dahlia growing is similar to how you would care for tomato plants. Dahlias do best with regular fertilizing. They do not need to be watered often, and the tubers can actually rot if overwatered. Dahlias are terrific cut flowers, and only a few plants will give you months of blooms for beautiful bouquets. Dahlia, you can grow that. What's going on in the garden this week? Well, fall has definitely moved in with cooler temps and a bit of wind and a little bit of rain that was very welcome. Over at our community garden plot, we've thinned the seedlings for our kale, chard, and radish, and the peas and lettuce we planted last week are already popping up, and that's gratifying to see. In my home garden, I'm still enjoying my summer annual planters, especially the coleus, which looks marvelous in the fall light. In the local gardening world, the latest issue of Washington Gardener magazine was sent out to our subscribers as a PDF file to their email, and that is the September 2022 issue. The cover story is on Russian sage, and there are also features on the recent Urban Tree Summit, uh, dealing with wasps in your garden, top tips for planting flower bulbs, advice for planting shallots in the fall, Going Beyond Bankies with Stephanie Fleming, and an article on the Friends Group that support our local public gardens, as well as how to attract blue jays to your garden. For local gardening events that are coming up, I will be speaking at Ledoux Gardens, and that will be on Thursday, October 6th at 10.30 a.m. on managing deer and other mammals in the garden. So that's deer, rabbits, squirrels, rats, groundhogs, and other creatures that are attracted to both edible and ornamental gardens. And I'll tell you how to deal with those and still be able to garden and do so in humane way. Uh, also happening in our local gardening world is the U.S. Botanic Gardens Fall Festival on Saturday, October 8th at 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's a day of plant fun that celebrates agriculture. They are going to have activities including uh, food, music, and science. And that's on the terrace at the U.S. Botanic Garden on the National Mall. If it rains, they'll move it inside to the conservatory. The event is free and no pre-registration is required for that. Uh, that same day, Saturday, October 8th, from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. is the annual African Violet Sale of the Baltimore African Violet Club. They'll be selling African violets, of course, and their cousins, the Gisneriads, along with pots and other plant-related items at the Joppatown Amish Market. You can find out more about that sale and the club at BaltimoreAfricanViolet.com. I have another upcoming talk I'd like to 
call your attention to, and that's on Thursday, October 20th at 6.30 p.m. in the evening. This is a virtual talk on getting your garden ready for winter. All the tasks that you need to do and some of them that you don't even need to bother to do. And I'll be sharing some cost-saving tips and how to batten down the hatches for winter's worst weather. So that's hosted by Brookside Gardens. Uh, The fee is $12, and you can sign up at activemontgomery.org. If you are unable to watch it live that evening, it will be recorded and sent out to all the pre-registrants afterwards. Um, And then we are having a garden symposium on urban gardening on Saturday, October 29th at 9 a.m. to 12 noon at Green Spring Gardens. And that would be myself and my co-author, Terry Spate of the Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City. Uh, The fee for that is $62 per person. And you can register online at fairfaxcounty.gov parks or by calling Green Spring Gardens. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.